Jessie, I wonder where she's been. Hey, girl, what's wrong? Timmy, what's Lassie saying? Dad, she's saying that members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals and that their comments do not necessarily represent the views of the various organizations they work with. That a girl, Lassie. Timmy, let's get some rope. They need our help. No, Dad. She says that anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. So you should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane, Dad. That a girl, Lassie. Skydivers are crazy, crazy people. There's just I think I think you have to be. <laughs> well, yeah, but sometimes they seem to go out of their way to make the point here. Um, this, uh, this so the YouTube video we're gonna like we're gonna always folks. I'm sorry, we're gonna constantly break our rule about talk, talking about videos here. But we're then definitely talking. Really, we're bra- definitely breaking. It's not the, really a rule then, is no, it? No, it's not really a rule. Um, so video on the net, and I'm not sure if this is all the same group, all the same incident. There's three or four videos here about three or four different stunts, and I will call these stunts uh, yeah. that uh, that that glider drivers and skydivers have done. For example, there's one that shows a pair of gliders. One of them uh, contains a skydiver, uh, and at the end, the other one. No, actually, no. The other one doesn't. He, he, anyways, he does an in-flight transfer. He does. He like climb, He opens the canopy. He climbs out onto the wing, closes the canopy, scooches out further on, towards the wingtip, kind of sits out there riding along, which uh, which just for starters seems wrong. All right, sitting on the leading edge of the wing. There's just so many things wrong with that that image, uh, and he just kind of sits there on the leading edge as they're flying along. All right, uh, and uh, just thinking, and you know they charged him for his carry on. Yeah, I know, and <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, um, I mean, right there, just having somebody sitting on the wing while you're flying seems like it's just, think about the, well, the drag and the, you know, what it's going to do, the flight characteristics and, and whatnot. But yeah, Jeff, it, it gets, it gets better here because remember that there's a camera platform involved. So there are three airplanes or three gliders or, or three aircraft or whatever you want to call yeah, it. That's right. Flying in relatively close formation here. Uh, two of them are, are, you know, up close and personal. Um, the skydiver uh, needs to check his meds, okay? Um, this is just a little bit, um, I don't know. I, it, one of the comments, uh, uh, scrolling down here, I'm looking at the, at the site with the stills. This is a Daily Mail uh, out of the U.K. Uh, website. <clears throat> well, some of the comments, though, are, are, he said, you know, look, I'd be more impressed if, if I didn't know they did this same stuff in the 20s on biplanes without the parachute. Yeah. That, I mean, they they have done this stuff. It's like a wing yeah. walker thing on one level. But you know, the the, the trick here is a they're you're, they're using sailplanes, gliders. B the trick is um, you know they're they're up close and personal uh, with a third uh, aircraft, the camera platform, and then uh, um, I, I don't I don't know. I, it's it's a it's a modern take on an old uh, an old thing. Yeah. Well, it's it it shows an impressive uh, degree of. Control and control authority uh-huh. for the two yeah. sailplanes. I mean, there's a uh, collection of stills pulled from some of the video that I was looking at uh, last week, where you can so clearly see the amount of aileron deflection needed 
to yeah. hold the yeah. wing level on the side. You know, it, it deflected it enormously to, yeah. to counteract the weight of that guy, weigh, weigh the heck out on that sailplane wing. But uh, somewhere in my archives, I've got a collection of photographs shot at Sun and Fun years ago. They're on slide film. That's how far back this goes. And it was a gentleman that did an act where he uh, got picked up by helicopter. He's hanging by his arm by a skid and eventually gets transferred to a steerman. Hmm. Wait a minute. He's transferred from the helicopter to a steerman? Actually, I think I may have it the other way around. I think he may have gone from this. I've, I've, I've tried to look for these puppies in the last week or so. He may have been transferred from the steerman to the helicopter and the helicopter to the ground. So clearly the steerman went underneath the helicopter. And this I was going to say, yeah. I, I say, clearly the, clearly the helicopter was not underneath the steerman. Yeah. Clearly um, the helicopter was not underneath. Yeah, but, but the, uh, yeah, the guy was dangling from the skid uh, at, at one point on it because one of the shots I got, it was just dumb luck on the uh, taxiway that takes you out to where the... Uh, biplane ride and helicopter rides were being staged on uh -huh. a grass runway parallel to 927 was a big yellow sign that said helicopter rides and an arrow pointing in the direction he needed to walk and and <laughs> that's in the shot with the guy hanging from the helicopter <laughs> well that's uh, uh that helicopter biplane transfer is actually uh, uh reminiscent of a famous uh air airplane tragedy uh Remember the, uh, who was it, a senator or something like that? Uh, John, Hines. Um, John Hines. John Hines. What was the situation here? They were flying in their uh, some sort of... He was, he was uh, in an Aerostar. Right. Um, and they were having a, a charter. He was inbound to, I believe it was Philly. Yeah, something uh, like that. And the, the, the Aerostar had a gear problem. Um, they were discussing it on the frequency. Um, a um, corporate-operated helicopter, I believe it was a Bell 400 series, uh, volunteered to go take a look uh, to see, you know, uh, what they could see. And um, the, you know, lesson one, you know, uh, um, um, one uh, close uh, uh, formation flying, uh, close impromptu formation flying 101. You don't do this kind of stuff yeah. unless, you know, uh, you've had a, uh, some time to sit down with everybody and discuss, you know, the parameters and everything like that. Basically, the helicopter flew up under the Aerostar, um, and um, the, uh, for lack of a better term, the uh, the downwash, the uh, input to the rotors of the helicopter sucked the Aerostar into the helicopter. They both crashed. Everyone aboard was killed. The passenger of note uh, was a sitting U.S. Senator, John Hines of Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh yeah, the uh, biplane helicopter transfer. Well, okay, all this stuff is nuts. I, Don't try this at home, kids. Do not try this at home. Well, uh, you know, the Red Bull guys were trained professionals. Right, at, I'll give at them about that. seven thousand feet AGL, sixty-six or sixty-five hundred feet AGL, more than enough for the uh, for the uh, jumpers to uh, deploy, and uh, but also high enough to hurt yourself if something goes oh, yeah. haywire yeah. and red bull may get, give you wings but i'm not sure those cans will let you fly 
That's right. That's right. Well, on that note, welcome, folks, to episode 183 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Wednesday morning, April 28th, 2010. Yeah, I know. What? 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 We used oh. to do this all the time when we were younger. In the early days of the podcast, morning was our default time of day, and uh, and uh, and then Jeb went out oh, and got a real. It's all default. Jeb went out and got a real job, and so we had to start doing it at night. But uh, we're we're filling in this week because we had a kind of a scheduling challenge once again, and uh, we all decided to get up early and uh, and uh, do our thing. So it's uh, yeah. It's the early nine, bird catches the pod. It's nine o'clock in the morning here on the East Coast, and it's eight o'clock in the morning in Wichita. Speaking of which, joining me here in the virtual hangar this morning is Dave Higdon, who's talking to us from early in the morning, 8 a.m., Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you doing? Oh, doing great. Doing great. I got the uh, caffeine uh, in the uh, bag, the IV needle hooked up, and uh, mainline and the, the, the cream and sugar. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mainline and the cream and sugar. <laughs> and also here this morning in the virtual hangar is Jeb Burnside, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How are you doing, Jeb? I'm fine, but only wimps need cream and sugar in their coffee. Yeah, I know. That's true. I'm sorry. There's just no there's just no call for it. When I came to visit you this time, I knew that I had to bring my own supply of cream and sugar, uh-huh. and, uh, uh-huh. and I gladly did. Uh, by the way, uh, publicly let me thank you once again for being such a terrific host. I just had a terrific time um, I'm glad. visiting down there, and I'm missing it already, big time missing it already. Me too. It was great, the little blips in and blips out that uh, happened at and uh, here in 7 a.m., Charlie going out and making sure mm-hmm. that I got up on time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I, one last thing about visiting your, your place. I, I, I sort of sensed this in past visits, but it was really, really apparent to me this time. And that is that, oddly, the fact that you live on an airport is not the coolest thing about where you live. Yeah. Um, I, in telling my friends about my visit down there since I've been back, uh, the thing that keeps coming up is that the airport is cool. But your neighbors are even cooler. Yeah, you yeah. have such great neighbors, uh, you know. And we're not just talking like one next door neighbor who happens to be a good guy. There are nice people all over that area that I met when I was there, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about one of those neighbors in a few minutes. But, but uh-huh. um, your neighbors are awesome. Your place is awesome. You are awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank thank you for all that, and, and of course, it was a pleasure to have uh, to have the both of you and. Uh, uh, we had a, a third individual, a, a listener. Uh, we, we might talk about it a little bit more um, down here for the, for the while. Yeah. Um, it's all good, and uh, um, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a um, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm kind of lot at a loss for words this morning. Not enough caffeine, <laughs> yeah, but uh, um, yeah, we we t- we try to have a good time down here, yeah. and uh, um, a lot of fun um, and a lot you, of airplanes. Yeah, succeed. A lot a lot of things to do. A lot of things to a lot of places to yeah. go. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I am talking to you this morning from the UCAP Summer Headquarters, high atop Lookout Point in historic Nottingham, New Hampshire. Uh, this is my first morning here at the, uh, uh, I'm actually going to be staying throughout the summer uh, in my family's uh, summer home uh, here in Nottingham, New Hampshire, and uh, a place where I've spent a lot of time over the, uh, throughout my life, ever since I was a little kid. So this is a very pleasant place to hang out, and today's my first full day here. So uh, I'm still getting my gear set up. I'm not sure whether my sound quality is is apparent that it's not as good as it usually is because I'm on the uh, on the uh, the temporary easy to set up microphone. We'll get the good gear set up by by next episode. Anyways, what's going on here? Let's see. Uh, 
Uh, what do we want to talk about? Uh, so, oh, well, yeah, your neighbor. This is what we want to talk about. Oh, okay. Um, so last episode, we talked about the fact that Amy flew up and gave me a ride in the Kit Fox, which was right. way cool. The very next day, I mean, it's like, I don't know, there's a there's an idiom about this. You know, it's like... Um, um, when it rains, it pours. When it rains, it pours, you know, or something like that. Because the very next day, something that had sort of been looming and lurking um, and maybe possible actually happened. And that is that another of your neighbors who fly a very, very cool old champ, uh, uh, Ironka champ, uh, offered to give me a ride uh, and, and did. And I just had a really, really cool uh, morning hanging out with your neighbor who, whose first name is Dave. There's a lot of Daves in Dave, the world. Dave it? Whitman. There's Dave. a lot of Daves down here. Yeah. Uh, Dave, Dave Whitman, um, he's a um, uh, retired uh, Eastern Airlines pilot. Uh, been living here um, in the development for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, he and his family uh, have a have a nice uh, um, little plot of land uh, around the corner, literally around the corner from me. Um, and um, he's got the Champ. Uh, he's got a he's actually got a uh, a couple of other aircraft in his hangar. Um, uh, one of them is not never going to fly again, but that's another story. Um, and uh, just a nice all around guy again. You know, just kind of the the the. Uh, epitome or the the uh, example of, of the neighbors around here yeah so we went over there Thursday morning and uh, spent spent a lot more time than I expected it was very pleasant uh, just literally hangar flying uh, there in the hangar just chatting about things and he was telling stories and we were trying to tell our meager story or meager by comparison to his uh, and a uh, very very cool guy and then we eventually uh, pushed the champ out onto the grass uh, and uh, it's got no electrical system uh, which is not uncommon but is not normal for me. I've never actually flown in an airplane that needed to be hand-propped. So uh, I got to fly in the front seat uh, and uh, went through the whole process. He briefed me on exactly what I needed to do in order to assist with the hand-propping process. And and then so he's up in front of me, you know, and I'm holding on to the brakes and he's like, you know, saying contact and all this kind of cool stuff, aviation stuff, you know. And uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm I'm easily pleased. and uh, he gave the prop a couple of spins, and on I think the second or third uh, uh, attempt, uh, it fired up, and uh, and then he came around and climbed in the airplane. And and uh, I'm not tailwheel endorsed, uh, as most people know, so uh, he did the taxiing and the takeoffs and landings. Um, but uh, soon after takeoff, he let me uh, take the controls, and I got to fly the airplane for about a half an hour. It was it was very cool. That was a big thing. I wanted to kind of feel what it was like. I'm, I've always admired the champ from afar. Uh, and uh, I wanted to feel what it was like to fly it, and it was no disappointment. It was very, very cool to fly. So if we flew around for a little while, and I was sort of practicing, uh, um, you know, kind of gentle turns, just kind of trying to get a feel for the airplane. The thing that I found most notable about flying this airplane, and there's this is no criticism of the Champ by any means, um, but it has a minimal set of, of instruments, and one of the things that uh, it didn't have was a uh, a, a ball. It didn't have a a, a you know turn coordination indicator. Slip skid it didn't have a skid ball. Yeah, and uh, and under the best of circumstances, I'm a sloppy rudder flyer. All right, um, I'm I have to refer to the ball in order to see what I'm doing. They say that you can feel when you're uncoordinated in the seat of your pants, um, and I I believe that, and I understand why you're supposed to feel it. I have never managed to feel it, and so I was in. I was a little. You got. You got to stop rubbing that Novocaine on your butt before you go flying. <laughs> it's not, oh, never mind. You promised. You I'm not going to go there you either. Promise you wouldn't tell, Dave. Um, 
So trying to keep the airplane coordinated was a really interesting experience for me. Um, and uh, trying to figure out what were the sensations that I would use to, to, to keep it coordinated. And, uh, and at first, I think I was pretty sloppy. He was very gracious. When we were all done, um, I made comment about this and thinking that, and he said I didn't do too badly, which was very gracious of him, because I'm sure I did not so bad, not so great more than once. But, uh, but that was very interesting. I really, it just goes to show you how dependent you can be on your instruments and when you're faced with a, a real you know, seat-of-the-pants, stick-and-rudder flying kind of situation. But I think as the, as the half hour progressed, I became more comfortable. And although I never got you know, really elegant at flying it, I felt like I was flying it okay. And, uh, and we just had a lot of time, a lot of fun uh, over a short period of time. And uh, so we came back into the area. I got lost. You wouldn't think in this big, flat area of, of, of south-central Florida that you could get lost. But we took off, and we didn't go very far. I mean, we didn't fly more than two or three miles, four, four or five miles away from um, Hidden River. Um, and we were bopping around, and I was sort of trying to kind of stay in the area. You know, I didn't like head in one direction. And so I was sort of looping back, and I thought I was approaching Hidden River. I was sort of looking for it out the front of the airplane, maybe off to the side a little bit. And, I, and I, I finally decided, okay, I give up. And I turned around. And by the way, there's no, not even an intercom in this airplane. I mean, this is like, you know, this is the, not only the first time I've flown an airplane with no intercom, with no hearing protection of any kind. I mean, it was like, and it wasn't that loud, but it was loud. And, you know, so you, know, you kind of learn, lean around, you're hollering back and forth at each other. Um, and you could hear as long as you spoke, you know, loudly <coughs> and clearly. So I, I turn around and I go, okay, I, I, I can't find Hidden River. Where is it? I'm looking out at the front of the airplane. And he says, oh, it's behind us. <laughs> and so I turned around and, we, and he says, he says, this is, this is such and such road over here. And I said, oh, okay. And so we turned around and the moment I turned around, I said, oh, there's Hidden River right over there. <laughs> so we came back. It was over hiding from you. Yeah. That's right. So anyways, I'm just flying along for this half hour, you know, and I'm kind of wallowing around the sky, you know, having a good old time, but, but not, you know, doing what I'm doing. And we got back, we crossed over the top of the airport and we were sort of where I would normally kind of like turned onto downwind. And I said, okay, you know, you can have the airplane back. And so he said, okay, my airplane. And the instant he took control of the airplane, all right, it turned into this graceful, wonderful flying bird, all right? <laughs> it suddenly was doing, it was suddenly doing these beautiful 45 degree bank turns around a point. And we were just like, oh, it was just, so you, he, you know, and I mean, that's no surprise, right? But this guy knows how to fly this airplane. Uh, yeah, Dave, Dave's good. He's, he's done it for years. Yeah. And uh, so we, so we went out and we flew, he flew for a little bit. And then we kind of came back around and we were sort of on downwind. And all of, he surprised me. He suddenly said, okay, we're on downwind, you, your airplane. And suddenly I'm scrambling because I wasn't expecting to get the airplane back. And I'm scrambling to get my feet back on the rudders, you know. And find, so I get control of the airplane. So I'm flying downwind. Now I'm on downwind and I'm looking for the right place to turn, ba turn base. And I'm unfamiliar with the area. You know, I'm not exactly sure how far away I really am. I can see the runway, but, I, you know, judging distances and all. And I don't know how high I want to be in this particular. Anyways, the, the upshot is I turn base at some point. And the moment I turn base, I, I just knew I'm high. So I turned around to him and I yelled back to him. I said, I said, we're really high. All right. And he goes, he goes, no, we're not. My airplane. All right. He takes the airplane and he just cranked us into a, a, a slip that was just phenomenal. I mean, you know, slip slide. Yeah. And we were coming down like a rock. <laughs> it's like, and, and within about five or 10 seconds, you know, he kind of levels it out and gets it back uh, coordinated. And now we're like on a good, uh, just ready to turn final. And we, he kept, he kept control of the airplane now. And we, we uh, flew down finally, slipped it a little bit more, not quite as dramatically, and uh, did a beautiful touchdown on Hidden River's uh, runway and uh, hardly rolled out at all. I mean, maybe used half the runway. And, uh, 
and then uh, turned around and we taxied back. And uh, Jeb was on the, along the side of the runway taking pictures and kind of watching. And we taxied off the, uh, off the runway, off the taxiway onto the grass. And his house is a little ways away. It's like a five, four, five minute taxi along the grass. And I didn't know whether he was going to let me out there and we were just going to go in different directions. And I didn't want to do that because I wanted to go back to his hangar and say thank you and all. And he suddenly says to me, he says, um, you know, no, let's see if Jeb wants a turn, you know. And so I thought, oh, okay, that's cool. Yeah. So I climbed out of the airplane after confirming with him that he was okay with me getting out while the prop was still spinning. And, uh, and, uh, um, and Jeb, you saw me get climbing out, and and I mm-hmm. hollered over to you. I said, "Your turn." And the look on your face was great. It was kind of like cool. You know? <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah. I, I didn't, I, I didn't I was... expect that. Yeah. And Dave's just a very gracious yeah. host in so many different ways. We but... swapped places, and you took off. Yeah. And uh, yeah. how was your flight? It was great. Um, I, I've been in in aircraft like that before. I've never been in that particular uh, champ. Um, you know, we took off, and and um, uh, he he took off. I should say. Um, um, flew out a little bit. He said, "All right, your airplane," and and I, you know, tried some gentle turns, and mainly was just trying to get get the feel of the airplane, and climbed up a little bit just to, you know, see what. Um, um, uh, there was a, it was a little uh, a bumpy uh, down low. Uh, it wasn't that much wind uh, that day, which was a good thing for everybody. Um, flew around a little bit. Uh, one of the things that I I said, "Hey, you know, I got this low and slow airplane," and. Uh, um, one of the things I want to do, I've never really had a chance to do because I'm always coming or going and, and uh, um, this kind of thing, was fly kind of lowish and slowish over the river um, uh, just uh, uh, east and south of, of the development. Um, so I did that, and one of the things I was kind of sort of looking for was alligators, of which there are you know a few down here in Florida. Um, so I've... I've uh, Maneuver the airplane, and I don't know, six, eight hundred feet above the above ground, and uh, flying along, and um, got the the river out out the right window, and I'm looking around, I'm looking around, and I'm looking on the river bank and, and this kind of thing for just just for grins to see if I can find an alligator, and in the middle of the river, swimming upstream, is something that is bigger than the airplane. <laughs> yeah. I, I swear to God, uh, there's there's this alligator that the locals call big bob for some reason um i don't know if it's if his name is robert or, or bobby or whatever but um it had to have been him i have i have seen smaller uh canoes okay um uh, this thing was just moving straight up the the middle of the river um uh, minding its own business and i was like uh, I turned around to to Dave and said, "Do you see that alligator down there?" And he, he "Holy, yeah, yeah, he does, yeah." <laughs> you know. And I said, "Well, that's enough. Let's go back." You know, yeah. <laughs> um, trusting in God, Continental, and and um, um, the Aranka uh, designer, but um, went on back and and uh, I said, "Well, let me you know position this on final for you, and I'll let you take it." And um, he says, "Okay." And uh, I got a little low and, and added a little bit of power and, and got everything back on a, on a nice little glide slope. And uh, I said, you can take it any time. He said, no, you're doing fine. Go ahead. And I said, all right. And um, I, I've got a little bit of tail dragger time. I've got a little bit. I don't have the endorsement. Um, but um, uh, flew it on down to final. And he says, no, nah, you know, you keep on going. You're doing fine. And uh, kind of banged it on. I, the tail wheel hit first. Basically, it put a three-point landing on it. But... Uh, uh, tailwheel hit just uh, um, a, a tad of a second uh, before the mains did, and 
and uh, Captain on the center line, he helped out a little bit and, and uh, uh, taxi back in and, and shut down. And it was just a great afternoon, a great morning, actually. It was. Yeah, it was. And uh, by the way, for what it's worth, I, I was standing now this time on the grass next to the runway. It looked like a perfectly fine landing. I had no clue that, that, you, that Dave wasn't flying. I thought it was. <laughs> um, looked good. And uh, um, we each took pictures of the other, and uh, they are, have already been posted on the uh, UCAP homepage, if anybody wants to take a look. Uh, and, and actually... The one you took of of us in the flare, I think, is going to be the cover image for June's aviation safety. Really? Yeah. My. Yeah. You, and you get credit for it. Well, th- thank you. That's that's yeah. very cool. Yeah. I like it, that it, picture. It, it just so happens we have a, a piece coming. Uh, and I'm not pimping the magazine here. It just so happens we have a piece on uh, legacy LSAs and talking oh. about Cubs champs. And, well, that's uh, very cool. I'm. I'm uh, it's just it's just you know kismet that it, it's going to work that way. That's great. Well, that's very cool. Um, so we had a great time. Uh, I had a great time at Hidden River. I think Dave did. Uh, even Jeb did this particular day. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It's just, I mean, and this is what I was talking about with your neighbors being so cool, all right, is that, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I had heard that there was a champ on the field, and I just kind of, you know, in my, uh, you know, the way I am, I kind of spread the word. I said, oh, I love champ. I've always wanted to fly a champ. And they, they go, sure, if we can find a time, we'll do it. And they did. So... Well, you, yeah, well, you mentioned something early on in this, Jack, that uh, is 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 kind of a, a a point that comes up from time to time. Talking to non-pilot people about uh, about GA, you know, encourage them to follow up on any urges that they've ever had to to get in a cockpit, take some lessons, maybe get a license. Uh, and that's the I stick my head in the door of those things, and I I don't know if I could ever learn. How to handle all the you know all those dials and needles and gauges and all that, and it used to be real simple place where I worked to take them over to an ultralight that mm-hmm. had a piece of yarn tied mm-hmm. to a wire out in front. That was your skid indicator, a yaw string. Uh, I had a a, a hall uh, wind meter for an airspeed indicator. And a little non-sensitive skydiver altimeter for altitude. And I said, all of this will fly without any of those three things. They just make it a little bit more convenient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in that panel that has anything to do with making the airplane fly. Nothing. Uh, The simpler it is, the easier it is for a lot of people to grasp the, the, the fundamentals and then roll into the okay. Well, this needle is for, you know, this this needle is to show you which way you're going, and this needle is to make sure your oil pressure is okay. And but if you take away some of these some of these instruments and point the person toward a, something simple like a, a you know a T craft or of course the Aronka like you guys are talking about, or even some of the early ultralights like uh, drifters and quicksilvers. We flew along and those puppies, fat, dumb, and happy with nothing. Yeah, I mean, just nothing because the airplane told you everything you needed to go, and we used our own judgment. If we're high enough not to hit anything, we're high enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, something for the listeners to keep in mind, you, you stick your head in a simple airplane like an Aronka and kind of go, oh, that doesn't seem nearly like enough stuff to to, to fly safely. Actually, it's the other way around. You don't need 90% of that stuff that's in these airplanes for them to fly at all. 
Yeah, sure. they're just there for the convenience of engine management and navigation and communication to enhance their utility and safety. You know, it's always nice to know that your oil pressure and oil temperature are are good. Uh, but if you took those away, the airplane would still fly. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and but I, you know, I repeat, I I was surprised. <clears throat> To the extent to which I was disoriented by not having that skid indicator, and uh, um, and Jeb and I were talking after the fact about ways that a, that a pilot might, you know, you know, use that as an opportunity to to practice in in the regular airplane, you know, uh, to kind of disregard the skid indicator and try and learn that feel a little bit more. Um, and I think that's that's a really great lesson. Um, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things also we talked about was uh, well, you know, what's hang on a second now. No electrical system, uh, which means um, no stall warning indicator of mm-hmm. any kind. Okay, and we talked about that a little bit. And, and I think the punchline is that the airplane has its own kind of sort of built-in stall warning indicator, and that's the burble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when you start getting close to the stall speed, and, and, and you know, next time you're down here, we'll, you know, go find another champ or something like that. Well, we'll we can demonstrate some of that. But um, the aircraft has its own built-in stall warning indicator uh, via the burble. Um, and I would venture uh, to speculate that most aircraft have, uh, most, let me rephrase that, most airplanes have a similar uh, kind of uh, stall warning indicator, even if they have an electrical system, even if they have uh, an electromechanical warning uh, system. Um, you, you go out in your Cessna 150 with a, with a full electrical system and, and get it up in the slow flight, and and uh, you get it close to the stall, and you start it starts to shake a little bit, starts to vibrate a little bit. Um, same thing, even the even if the horn is blaring at you, even if the light is blinking at you, uh, uh, it, it it's uh, it's still going to have that kind of a warning in it. So, um, <clears throat> I think the other thing too, and of course, one of the things Jack didn't mention here is we're flying around uh, on a you know it's a very comfortable morning here in, in southwest Florida, um, maybe 2,000 feet above ground. We've got the window open. You know, yeah. <laughs> we can, I'm stick, sticking my hand out the window, and it's, it's, it's uh, very comfortable. It's very relaxed. It's, it's just a different kind of flying from you know, the debonair, of course. But um, um, you don't need an electrical system to do this. You don't need um, all that other stuff. And uh, you do need the right kind of airplane. And this is certainly uh, an example of that. There are, you know, going back to the um, uh, um, champ versus cub, you know, that, that we're not going to go there. But uh, um, there's a lot of very simple airplanes out there um, that are just pure fun. Uh, the champs, the cubs, um, the air coops. Um, um, go to, I think, sportpilot.com and, and you can research uh, the legacy LSA uh, category and, and what types of aircraft uh, uh, meet that uh, definition. Um, they're they're increasingly popular these days. Yeah. Uh, old farts they, like the three of us uh, are, are you know thinking about uh, uh, life after the medical certificate or or old farts like me who are are um, you know uh, been flying around for years and in uh, I'll go some places airplane. Um, Starting to think about you know maybe uh, maybe something else or, or or something different or something in addition uh, might be the way to go uh, down the road here. I, I, I'm my airplane's not up for sale or anything like that, uh, and uh, um, uh, I, I plan on using it uh, quite quite often in the future. 
but um, um, something a little bit simpler, something that's designed to just kind of plink around at a thousand feet AGL. Not a bad idea. Yeah, that was. Uh, you, that, go ahead, David. I was, go go ahead, Jack. I, I was just just going to comment on that 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 part of it, the low, the low and slow part of it. The low part of it was also very fun. That was one yeah. of the things that came out of my ride with Amy as well. Um, and uh, you know, I I just can't can't recommend enough that that those of us who normally fly you know skyhawks and skylanes and bonanzas and whatnot um find yourself a a much simpler airplane and go flying low and slow it's quite an experience not only fun but learning experience and uh, well i could i can hear a champ guy out in oregon right now formulating uh the post that he's going to have yeah before this episode before he's even played all the way to the end of this episode going yeah "Yeah, you guys finally figured it out well champ guy was the one who who really was the one who who uh you know i'd always admired the champ from from afar you know seeing them at air, air shows and whatnot but it, uh, Champ Guy is a terrific uh, uh, evangelist for low and slow flying, and and it was his posts that made me want to fly this Champ once I heard it might be available. And uh, yeah, it, and he's right; it, it was a lot of fun. And he's a he's a poster child for this kind of stuff. He doesn't fly just locally; he goes all over the West Coast and over the mountains in his little airplane. Well, he took it all the way to Oshkosh, then on to Maine, and then back to Oregon uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, you know so, that is. That that's a lot of mileage in a champ, and you know, by the time he got home, he should have known most of the intersection, highway intersections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but you, the, the talk about stall indicator. Yeah. Our our, our beloved Air Comanche uh, that we unfortunately let go uh, a few years ago. When we bought it, one of the things that jumped out at me was there was no stall horn or stall light installed in the airplane. And I went out and looked on the wing, and sure enough, there's a little square opening with a screw plate covering it where the little switch for an electrical stall warning system uh, could could be installed. And talked to the uh, A&P that was going to do our first annual on it, and he said, well, it's not required. Stall indication is not required. It goes, no, it was optional on the airplane. Mm-hmm. But the CAR-3, that's what preceded FAR-23, CAR-3 regulations required that it have some physical indication of a stall or an artificial stall indicator. Well, it's got quite a buffet. When you get down to about five or six knots away from stall, the wing starts to do this, I'm afraid. And you can feel it. You can feel it in the yoke. Anybody that can't feel it is is numb from the neck down. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe I should have it put in anyway. And he goes, sure, uh, I'll take a look at it. Oh, it's going to cost $895 for the switch. Yeah, those things are just hideously expensive. I had to change one out a few years back. Yeah, and the wiring was already in the airplane, and there was already a place in the panel where the light would go. Mm-hmm. But it was going to cost a thousand bucks to put it in, and I went up with a, a a friend of mine, and we got a few miles from the airport and about twenty five hundred feet up, and I really forced myself to fully stall the airplane. You know, slowing down at a rate where you don't lose altitude or gain altitude as the airplane decelerates you slowly pitching up 
to try to hold altitude until you finally get into the pre-stall buffet. And by the time the airplane really broke, my buddy and I were looking at one another and looking out at the tips, and the tips are just kind of quivering out there like a nervous mm-hmm. bird. Mm-hmm. If I miss this in the future... Uh, you deserve what's coming next. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm having, I'm not having a good day in the left seat if I ever miss this in the future. And we passed on it, and to my knowledge, the airplane still doesn't have an artificial star warning indicator in it. Uh, you should be able to recognize it coming uh, by feel, even if you don't necessarily have the sensitive butt necessary to recognize a slip or a skid. Well, one of the one of the things that Jack and I discussed uh, in talking about this both before and after was, um, you know, you, you, you know, let's say a, a fully equipped electrical airplane with uh, all the bells and whistles, yada yada yada. Um, you are using basically two senses uh, when it comes to stall warning. You're using uh, sight uh, to see a, um, a flashing light, for example. Or you're using um, your ears, your auditory senses, to detect the horn. Um, you don't have that luxury or 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 um, capability in in a simpler airplane. So you're using different senses, uh, or you're using the, those same senses differently. Uh, specifically, you're using uh, your hearing again, but you're you're listening for. Um, less sound, the, the, the slipstream changes. Um, as you pitch up, as the power falls off, all that noise kind of goes away. Um, that's an indicator that maybe you're getting slow. Um, as the airplane gets into the, the stall buffet, you, the sensory uh, uh, um, the sensation changes where you're feeling that in your, in your seat, you're feeling it maybe in the stick. You're, you're feeling the airplane uh, uh, expressing its displeasure. And uh, those are all, A, stall warning indications, or, or B, uh, the airplane talking to you, whether it's uh, a flashing light, a horn going off, or, or something else. Um, it's a different set of, uh, sometimes it's a different set of, of uh, senses be, that are being used. But more importantly, it's um, understanding what the airplane is telling you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it was no a great airplane. It was a great, great morning, uh, and uh, both fun and educational. And uh, I, I would wouldn't hesitate to repeat it. And I urge anybody who has a chance to fly a simpler airplane. I, by the way, I should point out, in case it's not obvious, um, our, our host there, Dave, uh, is uh, a, a highly experienced, highly qualified CFI. Um, yeah, and so uh, he's fight, also a designated examiner here, and has been yeah. for years. So uh, we were we were both very safe and and very legal uh, in these things that we did. So uh, um, uh, it was, uh, anyways, it was terrific. Thanks to uh, Dave Whitman for his uh, his hospitality that morning. And uh, yeah, let me add that also that you know very very much appreciate Dave's hospitality and his patience and and perseverance and and uh, and giving us both some rides and and. Uh, uh, showing us his his champ, and also like to thank uh, his daughter um, uh, Wendy for helping make that happen. Absolutely, absolutely. Yet another one of your wonderful neighbors. Oh yeah. So, um, one of the big stories over the last month or so was the uh, uh, the crash, uh, the tragic crash of the uh, Polish president's plane. Um, 
in, uh, in the death of all on board. Uh, one little tidbit that's come out of this, and I don't know if this is true. This is just something that a listener has called our attention to. Um, mm-hmm. Jeb, I don't know if you have any new information, but here's what the I, listener... I, I don't, but go ahead. Here's what a listener has told us. Uh, the report that came back from, from, this, uh, from this incident, accident, uh, uh, tragedy, was um, that, the, that, that the crash happened during the fourth attempted approach. Um, and a listener, uh, Almestad, uh, in the forums said, uh, let's see now, um, just a small note on the Polish accident. There were not four approaches. It was a language translation mistake. I don't know if this information was available when you guys reported the podcast. And then he quotes something and he doesn't, let's see now, I don't think he says where he, I think this is from another report. Um, he says, and he's now quoting something. The phrase as it first appeared in the press was something like, they crashed after the fourth approach. But anyone familiar with the Russian terminology would instantly recognize the error. In Russian and a few other languages, possibly Polish as well, the final turn in an aerodrome circuit is called the fourth turn. So the interviewee merely said they crashed on final. Um, That's an interesting thing. It's plausible. I don't know if it's true or not. Um, that 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 uh, you know, and Lord knows it wouldn't be the first time that the mainstream media misunderstood an aviation term uh, and changed turn to final into the fourth approach. Um, Jeb, do we have any new information on this whole incident as a whole, or or this possible thing? I, I don't. Um, this is you know, and, and th- first of all, thanks to this reader, uh, this listener, uh, I should say. Um, um, back up here. This is um, Almstead. Almstead, uh, yeah. Almstead, um, uh, for pointing this out. Uh, obviously, I'm not a Russian linguist. Um, um, secondly, you know, I haven't really followed up on on um, some of the. Well, um, let me put it another way. I have noticed some of the the mass media reports that have come out of this that are that are follow up uh, uh, coverage. Um, and I uh, have not seen any discussion um, uh, of the um, the actual facts of the flight the, uh, of the operation. So um, you could, in fact, be 110% correct on this. Um, I don't know, and unfortunately, uh, it'll it'll take probably take a little bit more time until uh, the Russian and Polish authorities come to grips, uh, uh, come to an agreement on what kind of accident report to put out. Um, That's an interesting uh, phrase. That they come to an agreement on what kind of. Well, report. I, I kind of think that that's what's going to happen here. Um, now, the only the only things I do know is that the uh, flight recorders have been retrieved and, and have been. Uh, uh, I believe the Russians have um, um, given them to the to the poles for uh, research and, and readout and everything like that. And the studying of these recorders has been ongoing for some time. Uh, in, you know, in the West, um, um, you typically, on an accident like this, you'd have uh, a lot of follow-up stories in the media. You'd have uh, excerpts, uh, um, um, not so much conclusions, but certainly statements of fact relative to the data on those recorders. I haven't seen that. I, I, I will confess that I haven't really been looking that hard. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, it, it because of the... Uh, the states involved, because of the governments involved, because of the uh, symbology involved in in this uh, particular event, um, I think it's going to be uh, um, 
an interesting uh, uh, crash investigation, for, to say the least. There's a lot of egos, a lot of history, uh, a lot of, uh, of um, various um, uh, emotions involved here that um, um, will, will certainly, you know, I think, for lack, well, they will certainly enter into the crash investigation. Let me yeah. put it that way. Yeah. I'd love to hear from other listeners who might have more uh, familiarity with, uh, particularly with um, European special, you know, slang, if you will, or um, uh, local terminology, um, to see if we can confirm. And I guess I don't doubt that this is true. I don't doubt what Almostad is telling us, but I'd, I'd be interested to hear other perspectives on this uh, this possible translation uh, error. And uh, um, it, this should not be a big deal. I mean, the uh, flight recorders clearly will tell us how many approaches they attempted. Right? This is not something that we have to rely on on you know a, a casual well, it, comment. It, it, Depends on the recorder and how long the recorder uh, runs before it starts to write guess, over itself. I guess that's it's, true. Yeah. Do they are, do they use modern recorders? I was surprised of whatever it was a year or so ago to discover that recorders are now keeping more than a, that that modern recorders are keeping more than a half an hour. I thought that was well, sort of the magic number. Even old flight data recorders that recorded on foil. Uh, kept longer than thirty minutes, like the voice recorders did. So it should be there, but I. I believe if that aircraft was flying into uh, Europe, that it had to have a later model recorder on it because of when it was built. It wasn't a very old, as as uh, as uh, the Tupelo 154 go. It wasn't right. a very old airplane. And, and I, I thought the the reports of this being the fourth approach came from the tower where they were communicating, or the air traffic control people that they were communicating with, not overhearing a transmission and misunderstanding the right. language. Uh, I thought that was a report from the air traffic management officials that it, they were it, it, it still could be the translation error that this guy described, even if even a press, you know, if uh, the ATC folks were in a, doing a press conference, the mainstream media guy could just have misinterpreted and. Uh, so, anyways, I, you know, again, it's all speculation. I, I'm curious to hear what what other listeners might be able to, to tell us about this whole thing. And uh, we let, let me interject on. here. Yeah, also, ahead, um, while we're talking here, I just pulled up the Wikipedia page on this uh, on this event, and it does appear that uh, Almstead is correct. That uh, although there was some, uh, although the flight apparently circled the airport three times or so. Uh, before, um, yeah, let me just read the, the Wikipedia sentence here. However, after circling the airport at several hundred meters of altitude three times, the pilot made the decision to land there. The pilot, the plane crashed during this attempt, 200 meters um, short of the runway, after hitting some uh, 10 foot, uh, 10 meter high trees. Um, so it does appear that Almstead is correct, and then that the early, uh, the early uh, media reports were, were, let's just say, inaccurate. Yeah. Okay. All right. And another thing here, yeah. real quickly, um, um, there apparently are more than just two flight data recorders involved here. Um, the, you know, I, I've seen reports of up to four uh, recorders um, being aboard the aircraft. What, what uh, sort of record? Are they, they all record different stuff? They they could they could be you know analog versus digital. They could be different in capacity. Um, don't know. Um, but uh, the Wikipedia page uh, says that a third flight de- recorder designed and produced in Poland will be sent to Poland and analyzed there with the participation of Russian experts. Um, the, um, let's see, 
Uh, one day after the crash, investigators said they had reviewed the flight recorders and confirmed that there were no technical problems with the airplane. Um, yada yada yada. So, um, yeah. I, I don't know. Why, okay. I don't know why there are three flight recorders. There may be uh, um, uh, just different technologies involved, and they upgraded one of them and left the left its replacement in. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, and moving on to a more positive note here, uh, we have uh, an off-field landing of the week. Uh, we've got uh, a report from uh, KCRA.com. This is apparently Channel 3, KCRA in uh, Sacramento, California. Plane makes emergency landing on Highway 50. Uh, Highway 50 is one of the uh, one of the bigger non-interstate highways out in the Central Valley of California. Uh, Dateline Placerville, California, a small aerobatic plane scraped an SUV as it made an emergency landing on Highway 50 Saturday morning. This is from a little while ago. Let's see. This is dated. Oh, my. This is dated back in February. Anyways, um, pilot Jim Reardon was on approach to the Cameron Park Airport uh, at about 11 a.m., uh, uh, and then suddenly, Riordan uh, Re- Ro- uh, said, uh, the engine died near Highway 50. He quoted as saying, I found out uh, I could safely make the freeway, so I started to parallel the freeway the whole time I was trying to restart the engine, but I couldn't get it to fire at all. Uh, then he began merging with the westbound traffic from overhead, which is hard to do when you're right there on the highway, all right? But uh, he was doing it from overhead. I guess he had a better view than we usually do. Um, he said, if I haven't, hadn't nicked the car on the way in, I would have made uh, El Dorado Hills Boulevard turnoff, he says. The plane struck Jennifer Jacobs' Jeep Cherokee uh, on its way to a landing, which, by the way, I wouldn't necessarily consider it an SUV, but that's okay. Um, my daughter and I looked at each other and went, what was that? Uh, and we both just at the same time. Uh, and she looked, uh, uh, she just looked in hers, and we went, a plane, must be looking in their mirrors. And we went, a plane, oh my gosh, a plane. Uh, the story ends, nobody was hurt, uh, but the westbound lanes of Highway 50 were blocked at La Trobe Road in El Dorado County for a short time. So uh, another suggest- successful uh, on-road landing, and uh, my misgivings aside, this seems to be a, a reasonable way to uh, to deal with the problem when you need to. And uh, congratulations to Jim Reardon for uh, getting it on the ground safely. Uh, any comments on this before we move along here? No? I don't know. Nice I- job. Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to think Jeeps are SUVs, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, okay. I have a Jeep Cherokee, and that's perhaps why I'm. I, yeah, I, I do too. And, and yeah, oh, that's right. You do. I've never seen. That's right. That's your. That's your Georgia Airport car. My, my Georgia Airport car. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, congratulations uh, for getting on the ground safely, Jim Reardon, and uh, uh, good job. Good job. Let's see what's next here. Um, so, uh, David, what's the story here with this EPA thing? Uh, uh, aircraft, uh, non-railroad engines, equipment, uh, uh, we're kind of running out of our allotted time here, but this seems like it might be a, a sort of important information for people. Do you, can you tell us the quick short version here? Oh, we're talking about lead again and getting the lead out. Uh, Often and, a good thing, but what, what specifically are we talking about here? Well, it, you know, mo- many of our listeners who have been around general aviation for a while are probably aware that the only remaining motor vehicle fuel sold in the United States with tetraethyl lead as an additive, as an anti-knock additive, is 100 low lead for general aviation piston engines. And a succession of EPA officials, uh, even down to some regional officials, have tackled the idea of doing away with leaded 
aviation fuel uh, and have always been, I think, a little bit surprised at the level of resistance that they met from the general aviation community. Not that we're not interested in getting the lead out, if you will, but because of the complexity, technological challenges, uh, and lack of a suitable replacement, uh, that's unfortunately the, uh, the 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 goal here here is one fuel that's universally usable by all GA piston engines. Uh, the challenge in that is that that means that it's got to be compatible with fuel lines and 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 hoses and filters and fuel bladders, uh, rubber-type bladders and some wing tanks and sealants for metal tanks and others. And uh, and then there's finding the actual chemical compound that can be used safely and produce the kind of power uh, and reliability that aircraft require. Well, the EPA has started down the road of uh, a rulemaking that will lead to getting rid of leaded aircraft fuel, an advance notice of proposed rulemaking on lead emissions from piston engine aircraft using leaded aviation gasoline. Uh, This is just a starting point, and bless this little EPA's heart, the advance notice of proposed rulemaking actually acknowledges and accepts that for this to happen, there has to be some other movement on replacement fuel and compatibility issues. Uh, I think some of this is being driven right now, not by the amount of lead in aviation fuel, because how much fuel we use relative to all the fuel used in the United States is really, really minuscule. We're talking about a percentage of a percentage point. Uh, It's tiny. but I think it's being driven more by the recognition that some alternatives have started to appear, uh, developed out of processes uh, that uh, involve making fuel out of some kind of plant uh, or algae. Uh, there have been a couple of fuels that have passed this certification test that have been found to be viable in terms of their use in the aircraft. Uh, you know, the Swift fuel is one. There's some made from Camelina. Uh, there's two or three non-food source plants that are being used to produce both kerosene type and, and, and gasoline type fuels. Uh, I think this is kind of a nudge to the aviation community to say, guys, there are alternatives out there we really need to get behind the development of those alternatives and do away with leaded aviation gasoline. Uh, there are a number of points that could be in our favor long-term about this move. Uh, it's not going to be easy or cheap in the short term. Uh, and the funniest thing that I find in, in the debate is, well, we're going to have to solve the distribution problem. Uh, guys, we already have a distribution problem with 100 low lead. It has to be handled differently. It can't be transmitted, tra- uh, 
shipped through pipelines without the pipelines being uh, cleaned and isolated for, for 100 low lead aviation gasoline. Otherwise, it adulterates other gasoline sources or vice versa. We're already dealing with a special fuel in the distribution system, substituting uh, an alternative for aviation gasoline shouldn't be a big disruption to the distribution system. Just distributing something different is is really the only thing we're talking about here because there's still going to have to be isolation between this fuel, uh, whatever the replacement is, and normal gasoline. Uh, some of the good news points, some of the fuels being tested actually have higher thermal content, more BTUs which means that they'll produce more power, which should mean, and this has been borne out in some tests, that you can run slightly less fuel through the engine to get the same true airspeed and the same power. Some of the downsides are that some of these fuels have been a little bit heavier than the 5.85 pounds per gallon of avgas. Mm-hmm. And there's no way around that initially it's going to be more expensive, uh, except... Avgas is already more expensive than regular gas, largely because of the special handling and distribution required. So I'm not convinced that it's going to be tremendously more expensive because of that. Because, again, we're already doing that special handling part. That's already built as a cost into the system. So there should be some equaling out here along the lines pretty quickly on that front. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... The testing that's gone on so far has shown the fuel, some of these fuels, like the Swift fuel and a couple others, to be compatible with the fuel systems, to be compatible with carburetors and fuel injections, to not harm sensitive gaskets, tubing, bladders, or sealants. Uh, we're headed down the right road. Uh, I think one of the issues is we've, we're starting to have enough options here that the competition to pick one and make that the standard is actually, uh, I think, a risk of holding us up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I, I would agree with. I would agree with all that. Yeah. Go ahead. No, uh, I, I would agree yeah, with all that. Go ahead, I think. Jim. I think this this AMPRM is is a good thing. I, I like many of us. I, I tend to get a little uh, anxious. I maybe is the word uh, when. Um, non-aviation entities like the Environmental Protection Agency uh, start getting their getting in our knickers in, avi- in the aviation industry, in the, in the aviation community. Um, this ANPRM from all, and I have not read it, I, I just, while we're talking here, downloaded it, um, but um, uh, I'll, I'll read it later today or something, but um, I think this is a measured uh, response. I think it is, as, as Dave says, uh, uh, engendered uh, or occasioned perhaps more by the emergence of um, some some alternatives that with promise than it is um, an actual uh, you know lead poisoning crisis or something of that sort. Um, there are alternatives. Swift fuel is one of them. Um, uh, are, are or at least certainly my my good friends at uh, General Aviation Main uh, Modifications Inc out in Ada, Oklahoma, earlier this year, flew a uh, turbo-normalized Cirrus SR-22 from uh, Oklahoma to, I think it was Tennessee or Kentucky or something, 
Um, there's some some flight aware data available on that, yada yada yada. But um, they, you know, of course, they've slapped an experimental sticker on the airplane. Um, but they report uh, um, some very good results from that. I, I was had a brief conversation at Sun and Fun with George Brawley, uh, uh, chief engineer at, at uh, GAMI, as they're known, uh, and uh, he expressed a lot of optimism. And, and George is not um, uh, not one uh, prone to hyperbole. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's a reasonable uh, um, straight shooter. And uh, if George says something, uh, I tend to to uh, to believe it uh, uh, coming from him. So that's certainly one uh, 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 one of the alternatives and, and one of the uh, uh, research projects going on. Um, the the one of the problems I think um, out there in in coming up with an alternative or a lead free aviation fuel. Uh, certainly, the handling is is an issue, but I think uh, you know that can be uh, easily resolved, as, as Dave points out. Um, the problem that we have is is uh, one single fuel that is all things to all uh, operators. Um, to, in, in going back to the Champ ride, uh, the Champ was burning uh, 100 low lead. Uh, it, it's certainly eligible for and, and, and more than capable of burning uh, unleaded premium mo gas. Um, that's you know a, a, a Continental C65 uh, four banger that uh, I yeah, think that I have, was an 80 octane engine. Yeah, yeah. I think I have a motorcycle that that puts out more power than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so we've got that at kind of the, the low end of the, of the scale. We've got a lot of <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of Rotax and, and Jabiru and and other engines out there that are you know 100 horsepower or less. Um, that are designed for and, in fact, um, run best on, on MoGas. Um, we have, um, uh, you know, that's at, that's at the low end of the spectrum. On the high end of the spectrum, you've got the TN uh, uh, turbo-normalized uh, um, IO 550s from Continental. You've got the TSIO 520 and 550 stuff uh, uh, that are that jacked up uh, compression ratios and and putting out 350 horsepower. The the real problem child engine, uh, um, according again to the folks at GAMI, is the uh, Lycoming uh, TIO 540 J2BD, I believe it is, which uh, is the um, um, uh, engine installed in um, uh, aircraft like uh, the Navajo Chieftain and um, um, maybe some other aircraft. Um, 350 horsepower, it, 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 if you look at it wrong, it'll start to get into detonation, uh, uh, which is a, a, a combustion uh, um, um, problem, if you will, mm-hmm. an engine problem. Can can destroy an engine very, very quickly. And... Um, 100 low lead uh, is is marginal actually in, in some of those engines, depending on how they're tuned and, and uh, uh, how much fuel flow is 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 uh, uh, being used, etc. Um, according to to George, the fuel air testing um, doesn't create any problems, and in, in fact, uh, uh, it, it has better characteristics than the standard 100 low lead batch. So the, that's really to me the the, the chronic issue i i'm fortunate or unfortunate enough to own an airplane powered by an engine that is not eligible for uh for lower octane uh i'm certainly not eligible for mo gas um and that's certainly this is certainly something that's of a concern to me and, and certainly something that i'll be watching very closely yeah 
Shout outs. Let's see now, David, I'm going to steal one of yours here. Uh, I want to call attention, everyone, coming up in a few weeks is uh, Learn to Fly Day, which is becoming quite a thing. It seems that there are airports and organizations all over the country that are planning special events that will take place on uh, on Learn to Fly Day, which is, oops, I don't have it in front of me here. Is it May 15 is the date I want to say here. Let's see. Uh, can you believe I'm looking at the learntofly.com website and it does not have the date jumping out at you on the page here. Let's see here. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's been a bone of mine with this uh, early on that uh, the, the intent is good and the execution is starting to get better. Uh, they're you know, close to 300 events, I was told, uh, by one of the people helping promote this. May 15. Uh, is, May 15. Is, Thank you. That's May what I was looking 15. for. Yeah. Okay. So, anyways, May 15. Uh, the website, uh, notwithstanding, uh, it's a terrific idea. Uh, for example, we were talking with Hal and Sandy Shevers the other day, and they're planning a special event uh, at Sporty's, uh, or at Sporty's Airport in any, in any event, um, to uh, commemorate uh, Learn to Fly Day, and a lot of activities going on. Uh, just quickly, a couple paragraphs from the uh, LearnToFlyDay.com website. Learn to Fly Day is about sharing the joy of flight with everyone. Learn to Fly Day is happening all over the country at participating flight schools, airports, and independent flight instructors so that you can learn more about the wonders of flying. Uh, so uh, uh, you should look around your world and find uh, some, even if you're an active pilot, um, uh, this is an opportunity to gather all your non-flying friends to uh, bring them down to the airport. Uh, a lot of people are running barbecues and, and various open houses and uh, either free or inexpensive demo rides. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it seems to me like a great, a great program and uh, uh, it's coming up fast. So, uh, so check it out. And, or you can go to learntoflyday.com. Uh, for uh, more information about uh, things that are going on around the country. They actually have a list by state, so you can find different activities that are that are happening. So that's my shout-out that I stole from David. Uh, anybody else? Other shout-outs? <laughs> anybody I'll, else want to steal one from me? That, I'm uh, cool. uh, I'll, just, I'll just give one real quickly. David, thanks for all the shout-outs, man. <laughs> <laughs> Quick and dirty, I wish... I, I, I apologize for not remembering who sent this to me. I think it's one of my uh, one of my hangout pilot buddies here in, in Wichita, but, and I may be wrong about that. But it's called the Virtual Aircraft Museum. It's an online site that shows all sorts of aircraft, like uh, eight different designs that originated in Argentina, sixteen from Austria. 29 from Czechoslovakia, 318 from Germany, uh, 375 from Russia, 944 from the UK, 810 from the good old USA. Virtual Aircraft Museum, the link will be in the show notes. Uh, well, you can look up just about anything you could ever want to or just pick a country and go browsing. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. I'm just looking at it right now. There's a lot of interesting airplane types here, and like you said, by nation, and or, yeah, very cool. Oh, yeah, it'd be a great place to restart your My Three Airplanes list yeah. and, <laughs> and stump your friends. Now, let's see now. It appears to be uh, part of a website called, now I'm confused. The link we had, the link we had that, that uh, you called our attention to, David, uh, is aviastar.org slash Oh, gosh, I'm sorry, I apologize. Index2.html um, and uh, aviastar.org. 
index2.html. Um, uh, Avius, the, just go to the top level of Aviastar, and it appears to be all the world's rotorcraft. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. here we go. If you go to Aviastar, this is a simpler way to get there, aviastar.org, and that takes you to all the world's rotorcraft. And then there's a, uh, a SR, what is it, 51 uh, picture image uh, sort of halfway down that page. And if you click on that, it takes you to the Virtual Aircraft Museum. So, anyways, it is a cool site. Any other shout-outs? Shout-outs? Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I don't have one. If you do, go. Now's the time. Well, I was just going to shout-out to Keith McQueen while we're talking about the Virtual Museum. Uh, listener Keith uh, Keith McQueen, who uh, posted a link to a uh, pilot's manual for the SR-71 Blackbird. So when you get uh, tired of browsing the museum, you could get the link from uh, the uh, post that uh, Keith McQueen put in to uh, the other topics area of our uh, forums pages. And, of course, you go to the forums pages, right? Yeah. Read and post and and do all these things that uh, only our listeners get to do. So you, you check this out. You can bone up on the procedures before you get your SR-71 checkout, right? There you go. And bring a big credit card. Yeah. Yeah. No, actually, people do love this kind of stuff because they'll fly the SR-71 in the flight simulator programs. And, uh, there you go. You know, if you're serious, Which is much, flight, much cheaper. Yeah. So, anyways. All right. Any other uh, shout-outs? Flight-outs? Shout-outs? <laughs> no? <laughs> Time to stick a fork in this one. It's too early in the morning. I don't know. I'm going to go back to bed. Dave Higdon. Uh, Dave is a, uh, an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, uh, some safety magazine that I'm sure we'll hear about eventually, or just or davehigdon.biz, Google the name, and take uh, you know, roll the dice and see what comes up. And Jeb Burnside uh, is an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? AviationSafetyMagazine.com, um, JEBurnside.com, occasionally pop up on AvWeb. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at JackHodgson.com and AroundTheField.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and all the other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. By the way, as an aside, I should say that uh, over the few years, people have been asking as an alternative method to, uh, to drop things in the Tip Jar other than PayPal. And we now have a post office box address if anybody cares to uh, send... Something valuable. I don't know. I feel I'm a little embarrassed asking for people to look at the tip jar, but these people are very generous in this regard. So uh, if you didn't like PayPal and you can think of an alternative that could come by post office uh, mail, uh, there is now a uh, post office box there that you can you can. Beer send. works. Uh, yeah, that's right. Please, small packages properly labeled. Um, don't forget you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website Uh, you can read the blog, you can view the forums check out the wiki, the aviation movies list the new ratings, webpage of fame and more, all of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com David, you were going to say something? want to live long and prosper, go flying because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan bye bye that's enough talking, let's go flying AMFFM 
Good morning. Going to do no. the wang dang doodle. Oh, <laughs> Eight o'clock in the morning, Dave. Huh? Are you a morning person? Uh, some mornings. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, uh, is, this, is this one of them? Uh, well, we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> too soon to tell for me, too. Okay. Uh, 